Hello and welcome to the podcast of First Church. I'm glad you could join us for this special message. And it is from Dr. David Bernard in the Life of Holiness series. And uh, this is lesson three of the series where Dr. Bernard taught on modesty. It was a great word and I pray you're blessed by it again today. Go straight to the word of the Lord. I don't just have one text, but the whole thing will be text, I believe. But I want to talk about a spirit of modesty. This is the third and final lesson in the series. The first one we talked about the principles of holiness. Holiness covers the entire Christian life. It's the pursuit of holiness that we're talking about. It starts with conversion. It continues throughout our Christian life as we walk with the Lord. And then last time we talked more particularly about the importance of distinction between male and female, how that is God's plan from the beginning, and that should be demonstrated outwardly through our dress, our hair. That is a principle in the Word of God. Uh, and then today I want to talk about modesty. Now, of course, holiness is comprehensive, as I said. We could talk about our attitudes, our thoughts, our speech, our conduct, our amusements, uh, our position as far as the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of marriage, Really, all aspects of walking with the Lord are part of the life of holiness. Nevertheless, I've chosen a few key areas where we are probably different from the majority of Christianity today that goes by the various denominations and organizations. Although the things that I'm talking about were once held in common by the people of the early centuries after the Bible and before the Council of Nicaea, held by many people during the Middle Ages, reformed groups such as uh, the Waldensians, the Hussites, and then as the Protestant Reformation began, people went back to the Bible, rediscovered these truths. The early Calvinists, and, and John Calvin himself was a strong proponent of some of the teachings that I will share with you tonight. John Wesley, the early Methodists, were more strict uh, than you'll find me being tonight. Uh, the Anabaptists, uh, some of the early Baptists, the holiness movement, uh, the, the early Pentecostal movement of all kinds, Trinitarian, oneness, uh, all branches, and uh, many of the fundamentalists, the independent Baptists. So when you go throughout history, you find many times there's a revival movement or reform movement. They would go back to the Bible, make up their minds, we want to follow the teachings of the Word of God specifically, and they would come to these same conclusions. It's by no means something that is unique to me or to the United Pentecostal Church International or to the oneness movement. But these are some principles and, and practices held in common. But the problem is the culture of the world presses against these principles. And so I want to start with 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 15. I think I have at least some of this on PowerPoint tonight. I'm going to be using primarily the New King James Version because it will make it easier to understand and require a little bit less time of explanation probably in some things. But we're going to start with 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. And the point that I want to make here as Christians, we're called to be counterculture. We're not to conform to this world, but we're to be transformed and follow the mind of Christ. And so we find the statement, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, Jesus died for the world, meaning the people of the world. But he tells us not to love the world, meaning the values of this world, the cultural system of this world. Christians have a different perspective, different values, different goals. We should have... Things that we love should not be the same thing the world loves. The things that we hate or are abstain from are going to be different than what the world might think. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint, but if you go to the very next verse, it defines more clearly what we're talking about when they say the world in this sense. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. If you think about it, the lust of the flesh would mean any strong desire in your flesh, in your body, in your human personality that would take precedent over the will of God. So it could be a love of money, it could be a love of power, social standing, 
sexual desire, whatever fleshly lust that would motivate you contrary to God's will or that would become a priority in your life over God's will as expressed in God's word, that becomes a lust of the flesh that is of the world. And then there's the lust of the eyes, and I think that's interesting. That's a subject for another lesson, but you know, the eyes are the primary sensory gate of the soul. What we watch, what we view, what we observe, what we read, that stimulates our thought life. Our thought life determines who we are internally. And so the lust of the eyes would be strong temptations to go against God's will that come through the eyes. Once again, we could be talking about sexual immorality. We could be talking about greed or covetousness. Uh, when we see something, we desire it, and we put that desire above the will of God, the lust of the eyes. And then there's the pride of life, the ego or self-will, which I think is the root of all sin, where we'd say, I want what I want. Regardless of what God's Word says, I want this. Or it may come in the form of, well, I know this is a principle. I know the pastor teaches this. I know the church believes this. But in my case, I think there should be an exception. You know, to me, I can avoid sin here. I can walk a fine line. For most people, you know, that's probably good. You know, if you ever hear a message on gossip or tail-bearing, everybody says, yep, that's right, that's good teaching. I hope Sister So-and-So is listening. But for us, when we say something out of line, well, of course it's important because I'm the one who's sharing it. Uh, this is an important prayer request. And so for other people, it's gossip. For me, it's justifiable sharing of legitimate information. When somebody else gets angry, it's easy to say they have a bad temper. They need to get a hold of that. and They, they need self-discipline. In fact, they probably crossed the line of sin. But when we get angry at someone and lash out with hatred or uh, ill will or uh, maybe wrong speech, well, you know, we had a bad day. We were pressed beyond measure. Any normal person would have reacted like that under that kind of provocation. That's the pride of life where we focus on what we want and we justify ourselves. We've got a tremendous ability to justify what we want. And so as Christians, we're called to be countercultural, not to let the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life dictate to us, but instead go to the Word of God. We talk about a spirit of modesty, I'll just say at the outset, before going any further, that when we talk about modesty of dress, when we talk about uh, how Christians should dress and should not dress according to the Scriptures, we're not just trying to be different. We're not just trying to be uh, weird or uh, different from culture for its own sake, but we're trying to guard against these three forms of temptation. In fact, if you'll think about it, immodest or ostentatious or extravagant dress and ornamentation tends to arouse the lust of the flesh in the wearer or, and or the observer, the lust of the eyes, most definitely, and the pride of life. And so we're concerned about staying away from these areas of temptation and even sin. So let's go a little bit further here. What I'm saying is we are supposed to be separate. I established that in our first lesson. Not arbitrarily, not just different to be different. But when godly values conflict with worldly values, we're supposed to choose godly values. So I'll remind you of 2 Corinthians 6, 17-18. Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So if uh, the culture... Um, expects something that is not contrary to godly values, then okay, I'll go along with the culture. So that's where I'm, why I'm wearing a suit and tie. Not because I personally prefer, prefer to wear a suit and tie, but my station, my situation, where I am right now, that's what's culturally expected. Not only the United Pentecostal Church, but the world at large, generally speaking, I'm just going along. Because it's a matter of indifference. If I was in another cultural situation, if I was dealing a youth service, if I was in Eastern Europe, or if I was in outdoors in Africa, um, if I was in the Philippines, I would uh, be, be wearing that open uh, collar shirt and enjoying it. Uh, so, or if it was a multicultural service, 
uh, I would be wearing one of those African shirts or something like that because I could get away with it legally in that context. So whatever I can go along with, but there are some principles there. So if the culture says, well, in this situation, dress immodestly, according to God's word, that's where we draw the line and say, wait a minute, I don't care what the cultural expectation is, I must go by the word of God. All right, now let's talk more specifically about dress since I've introduced that. And we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to start with verse 8 to give us a little background and show you that there is a logic in this passage that sometimes we overlook. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 8 and going through verse 10, says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Well, notice the appeal is for men to worship God in holiness and to set aside typical besetting sins that might compromise or destroy their holiness. Well, you could list a hundred sins, lying, stealing, adultery, um, idolatry. You know, you could list all those. But as the Apostle Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he was contemplating a group of men worshiping God, lifting up their hands, and he was saying, now what might be hypocritical or what might undermine the purity of their worship? Well, it's very common that a man might struggle with wrath, violent rage, uncontrolled anger. And of course, if women have problems with that, then women would need to heed the same advice. He's not saying it's something compromising only for men and not for women. But if we're honest, uh, most violence in the world is committed by men, most child abuse by men, most spouse abuse by men. It sometimes happens the other way around, but I think you can safely say that men often have a problem with their temper and lashing out in unrestrained rage uh, physically or uh, emotionally or verbally. And so he says, men, if you're going to worship God in holiness, you've got to get control of that. And then he mentions doubting. And there again, it's possible for both men and women to succumb to doubt. But men do tend to be a little more skeptical. If you'll notice in uh, the church, especially in the early part of a revival movement, women tend to come in quicker. Men tend to take longer. And I'm thankful that in our Pentecostal movement, we probably have in, in our mature churches, growing churches, strong churches, equal numbers of men and women. But often, in the beginning of movement, it's two-thirds women because women tend to be more trusting, have more faith when it comes to God. And men tend to analyze. They've got to have all their questions answered. They've got a lot of doubts. And so the Apostle Paul says, you've got to break through that. If you're going to worship God in holiness, you cannot allow the typical besetting sins of men to control you, but you've got to set those aside and overcome them. And as I said a moment ago, if a woman or a young person or anybody else struggles with those same sins, the message is good for them too. Now notice in verse 9 he says, In like manner also. So there's a connection between verse 8, what we've just talked about, and what we're going to see in verse 9. And he's giving the same kind of advice for women. So just as he wants the men to worship God in holiness and to set aside temptations or sins that could compromise their holiness, so also he wants the women to worship God in holiness and to set aside things that might compromise their holiness. And so now... Speaking in generalizations, uh, he says, here are some besetting problems that typically are associated with women. And I think I would make as an aside probably the reason why they're associated with women is because the men are the ones uh, desiring for the women to, to promote themselves in these ways. So, uh, of course, we're not talking about men versus women. We're all guilty of the problems here. But he specifically mentions outward adornment and appearance because women do seem to struggle more with the temptation of I want to look attractive and beautiful therefore I need to do whatever I have to do to get the attention of men and so he says this is an area where women need to be careful that they not compromise their holiness in worship now again I would say if men have a problem in this area 
It's good advice for them too. And unfortunately, in the 21st century, this has become a male problem, perhaps to a greater extent than, than any other time in, in, uh, in, in many centuries in the West, that we now have to look at this admonition in the male perspective as well. But notice, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. He says, I want the women to adorn themselves. Now, notice, to adorn means to decorate, to beautify. He's not saying, I want the women to look ugly or slovenly or dirty or careless. He says, I want the women to look nice. It is okay and proper for women to beautify or decorate or adorn themselves but according to certain guidelines. And now he gives you the right way, and he gives you the wrong way. Somebody sent me um, a YouTube uh, link of a famous charismatic evangelist, and he was talking about ugly praise. And for some reason, he got on his own upbringing as a Trinitarian Pentecostal. And he began to talk about how the women wore dresses, and they didn't cut their hair, and they didn't wear jewelry and makeup. And he talked about how ugly they were and how they all need to wear lots of makeup. Well, there's something wrong with that picture. Because if the way God created you is naturally ugly, then that's an implicit condemnation of the Creator. So I think he must have been reacting to something else. And probably there was a lot of justification going on because apparently there was some feeling of condemnation of his own background. That's all I could figure because, uh, I, you know, I shared it with my wife and uh, we were at a conference and, uh, and uh, she had the idea of I ought to just go up, up to him and say, I'm one of those ugly Pentecostal women that you preach about. But we didn't do that. We thought about doing it because I don't consider my, my wife to be an ugly Pentecostal. Now, if she didn't comb her hair and if she didn't, clean her clothes, and if she didn't try to look attractive, that there would be something wrong with that. What I'm saying is, according to Scripture, you can look attractive, you can try to look attractive, but there are guidelines that are godly. So let's look at the guidelines. Adorn themselves in modest apparel. And we'll come back to this in a moment, but here's the right way. In modest clothing. So you can, in other words, you're not appealing on the basis of lust, which immodest clothing would do, but you're trying to use clothing in a modest way to highlight your attractiveness. So I don't think you have to wear all black or all gray or all white. I think there's room for color and style and fashion and bows and lace and buttons and whatever, but it's got to be modest, not the immodest exposure of the body because that gets away from attractiveness in the sense of beauty and becomes sex appeal. And of course, when you read, uh, when you read the, uh, the advertisements, they explicitly say, this will make you sexy, this will make you alluring, and then they'll use even more graphic explanations, which should let you know that what the world's styles are trying to do is exactly opposite of what the Scripture tells us to do. All right. And then, uh, so there's the proper way. Not or proper ways with modest clothing, with propriety and moderation, and then on the other hand, not with braided hair or golds or pearls or costly array. And then when we go to verse 10, again, here's the proper way. But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So the proper way is that your godliness and good works. Now, many of you probably have, test have testimonies. My wife certainly does time and time again, that Pentecostal women have been shopping or going somewhere uh, out in public and people would come up and say, you know, what religion are you? What church do you go to? Or would you pray for me? And they would say something to the effect, there is a beauty, there is a godliness, that uh, there's something about you. And of course, I despise the fact that sometimes you might find a woman who may be Pentecostal, or maybe there are other groups that dress similarly, 
that looks sour and frustrated and hateful and gives a hard time to the waitress and doesn't leave a tip or, or abuses the sales clerk verbally, well, that's not holiness. That's not godliness. There needs to be a beautiful spirit. But if there is a woman with a smile and faith in God and a spirit of worship and kindness, there is something that emanates. There is a holy glow. There is something that is attractive, but in a godly and spiritual way. And that's what we should desire and seek. Now, let's go a little bit further in talking about some of these words. The word modest, I just decided to look at Webster and see several definitions. And notice particularly the definitions that have to do with dress or appearance. Because obviously that's the context of this passage. Now, we could go into the Greek and use the Greek definitions, but they really come right back very similar to the English definition. So I thought I would, I would share this with you. I'll run through several definitions to, just to give you the range of meaning, but as I said, we're sp- particularly looking in a context that's dealing with appearance. So here goes. Having or showing a moderate opinion of one's own value, abilities, achievements, etc., not vain or boastful, unassuming. Next definition, not forward, shy, not forward, shy or reserved. Next definition, behaving, dressing, this would certainly be relevant, speaking, etc., in a way that is considered proper or decorous, decent, that's a synonym. Next definition, moderate or reasonable, not extreme. Next definition, quiet and humble in appearance, again, we're talking about appearance, style, etc., not pretentious, synonym, chaste, shy. And further explanation, modest and decent are both applied to propriety in behavior, dress, bearing, or speech as exhibiting morality or purity. Then some of the other words in this passage, you might be familiar with the King James. There is the word shamefacedness, which is an old-fashioned word. But actually, if you think about it, it really communicates something. You know, the problem in our society is people lack a sense of shame. Now, instinctively, everybody says, well, I, I don't want to be shamed. Shame sounds like a bad word. But you know what? There are some things we ought to be ashamed of. Sometimes you flip on the radio, or sometimes you're going through the Internet uh, looking at headlines, or sometimes you open a magazine, and, or sometimes, I remember, I don't remember which occasion, but one time I was sitting there in an auto repair shop waiting for my car to be repaired, and this is daytime television in the in the waiting room, and they start talking about things. But I'm thinking, wait a minute. I didn't know people would talk about that in public, and certainly I wouldn't confess to the whole world what I was doing. You know, they get in all kinds of crazy, uh, immoral situations, and of course I guess that's the appeal of it, to see how uh, immoral it can sound, how grotesque it can sound. That it would even shock the jaded conscious, uh, consciousness of the world out there. But that's the problem with our society is they've lost a sense of shame. There ought to be some things we would be ashamed to be caught doing or ashamed to be caught saying. Some type of clothes we would be ashamed to be caught in. So there is a value in having a sense of shame. It's really a sense of self-respect, shamefacedness, or Uh, Very modest, bashful, or shy, showing a feeling of shame when when there would be a a need. Uh, The New King James says propriety. The NIV says decency. Then you have the next King James word, sobriety, which the New King James uses moderation, NIV, propriety. So you can see there's, there's some overlap in meaning. But it's speaking of what is appropriate to the occasion. Now, modesty, if you're alone... Or if you're in the bedroom with your spouse, or if you're in the shower, or with you're in the backyard uh, behind the fence, or you're with your family, there's one set of standards. But if you're out in public, or you're out in mixed company, there's something greater at stake. So you see, modesty, or decency, or propriety is what is appropriate to the occasion. So some people try to push us to the point of being ridiculous. Well, you know, you don't believe in this and that. Well, what do you, what do you wear in bed? You know, what do you wear in the shower? Well, we, we understand that what is modest in public uh, it doesn't necessarily determine what you have to do in private 
or what's modest in mixed company doesn't determine what would have to be modest in same-sex company. Although in our day, you begin to wonder. Uh, so the point is, it is relative to the occasion. But of course, there is a certain absolute minimum of modesty in public or in mixed company, uh, regardless of what the culture might deem to be appropriate. Think of it this way. When he says, as a positive command, wear modest clothing. That, that's the bottom line, what he says. Wear modest clothing. Doesn't that mean some clothing is immodest? If there was no clothing that was immodest, the command would have no meaning. In other words, he's saying, don't wear immodest clothing. Now, I've got two things to ask you. People in our day, even Christians, will wear bikini, shorts, halter top, bathing suit, mini skirt. And they must think, apparently, by their actions, if, that that's considered modest. If that's modest, what could be immodest? I mean, that's one step away from nudity. So if that's modest, there is no immodest clothing. Obviously, people that make those choices have really thrown this passage out the window. Regardless of what definition you or I would give, my point is there's got to be some clothing that's immodest that Christians should stay away from. But in our age, it seems like Christians have lost that very concept. Another thing I would ask you, this was written in the first century, Inspired by God, the Apostle Paul was not rebuking Christians that are walking around in public wearing a bathing suit, bikinis. That wasn't the problem. So I began to ask, what could he have been worried about? If he's so worried about wear modest clothing, what was he worried about? Is it all hypothetical? And really, those cultures at public was generally very modest. I did find a reference that sometimes the women were out working in the fields would hike their robes up above their knees for convenience. So that might have been what he was talking about. The kind of, you know, I, I don't think uh, in that culture they had modest clothing. Now people were immoral and modest just like they always have been, but their basic style of clothing was designed to be much more modest than ours. And so you'd assume that a Christian who already had a concept of modesty would wear the, the predominant modest clothing of that day. But yet the Apostle Paul was concerned that Christians might be caught in immodest situations. So if you think, what would he have been concerned about? And if he were to show up today, what would he think? And so we've got to take that seriously. Now, go a little bit further here. Uh, he talks about What's improper? Uh, improper adornment, uh, braided hair, which I don't think he's referring in the context. It's a context of ornamentation, so I don't see that he's talking about braiding two strands of hair together. But rather, it seems to be elaborate hair arrangement, very ostentatious, which I remember back in the, the 70s when I came back as a teenager, a young teenager to the U.S., oh, I was just just amazed in a negative way because it seemed like many Pentecostals had no concept of moderation when it came to hair. That, that has moderated greatly since that time for which I thank the Lord. Because we, we don't need to violate one aspect of Scripture by fulfilling another aspect of Scripture. Uh, so I think it's talking about elaborate hair arrangement or particularly braiding jewelry into the hair. See, the women of that day typically had long hair. And so what they would do, they would take advantage of that to take a string of pearls or some gold coins that they would have the holes in the middle and they would string them along on a silk cord. They would wrap that into their hair. They'd make it part of their hairstyle or their headdress. So he was talking about that kind of ornamentation in the hair. And then he says gold, which to me represents precious metals, pearls, which represents precious stones. Now, I don't think he's saying, don't wear gold, only wear silver. Or don't wear pearls, just restrict your choice to diamonds. I don't think that's the point. I think he's using an example of precious stones, precious metals, and say, this should not be used for personal adornment. Whatever use it has, when it gets to become wearing it on your body, that crosses the line where you're dealing with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and that's pushing you too far. And then he says costly clothing, expensive, extravagant clothes. Now, 
We Pentecostals need to be careful to follow principles and not just rules. And I remember one time I was teaching on this, and I said, you know, if, uh, you know, I have a watch here, which you buy at a jewelry store, but the primary purpose is to tell time. So I consider that functional jewelry. So it's not just banning jewelry, but if this primary purpose is function, it may have some ornamental value. I don't think you have to choose your clothes or your watch as plain as it could possibly be. So it has some functional value, but the main purpose, uh, it has some ornamental aspect, but the main purpose is function. Okay. And I was teaching away, and I said, but you know, if I had a $5,000 gold Rolex watch with jewels all over it, maybe the purpose is not really function after all. Maybe I, wore, I chose that for ornamental value. And so some guy came up to me afterwards and says, uh, Brother Bernard, I have a $5,000 gold Rolex watch. And then he proceeded to go, but, but you know, it was given to me at a really low price and I only bought it for such a... I said, well, you know, whatever, just let the Lord talk to your heart. So I upped it to a $10,000 gold Rolex watch just to make sure. But you see the point. I do believe this is speaking, uh, telling us not to wear ornamental jewelry. And even if it's imitation and cheap, but you start wearing uh, earrings and necklaces and, and so forth, then that's violating the principle. But if we're going to have that attitude, we've got to be careful now that in the choices that are allowable. So if you say, well, a wedding ring, is the primary purpose is function. Well, a watch, primary purpose is function. Or cufflinks, the primary purpose is function. Okay, I can understand all that. And there's some discretion. There's some Christian liberty. There's some personal choice. But if those choices are used in a very extravagant way, you know, I'm, I'm wearing a suit. You know, that's allowable. It's clothes. But if we choose things that are very elaborate, ostentatious, costly, some things may cost more because they're better quality. We understand that. And to some extent, it's culturally determined. If some clothes you'd wear in a poor third world country might be very extravagant, which would be considered pretty much average here. But, so, but at some point, we have to ask, even in our selection of allowable functional items and clothing and hairstyle and so on, what is our purpose and what is the signal? So are we doing this to make a big statement of how rich we are or how we, we're pretending to be rich? Or every head to turn and everyone to say, wow, and look at this gorgeous person? There needs to be a sense of moderation. So there's a principle that transcends any rule that you could have. Now, I'll mention this. I had a call this week, and, and this happens on occasion. New converts that have been in the church a few years, often they react like this. In this call, a medical doctor, been in church only a few years, and she says, you know, I came to General Conference. She says, I'm wondering, there were some young people that, their dress was long enough and their sleeves are long enough. You know, they met the rules, but they look like streetwalkers. And she said, I asked, are these our people? They're not our people, are they? And yes, they were. She says, how can they do that? And I said, well, you know, there are some people that they're part of us, but, and they technically abide by the rules, but their spirit is really far from us. And they'll find a way, no matter what rules you give, somebody that wants to be seductive or flashy or lewd or or appealing to the flesh, can find a way to do so within the rules. But then there are also some raised in church that don't necessarily have a bad spirit or deliberate attempt to be seductive, but you get in a little Pentecostal competition or church competition of outdoing one another. And since we do tend to dress up more than lots of people, and we may know a little bit more about that style of dress than the average person, that sometimes we can get caught up in a world of our own and it takes someone from the outside, just an ordinary average person, say, wait a minute, aren't we getting into this big fashion competition? And we need to get back to the real world. That we don't need the latest of everything. We don't need to have a competitive spirit. There does need to be a moderation that goes beyond any rules I could enunciate, but a spirit of moderation. Now, let me quickly give you uh, some uh, more supporting evidence. Some negative examples, I'll run through these. Jezebel in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 9.30. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. So jewelry and makeup 
trying to be seductive and escape the judgment that was coming. Another example, Isaiah 47, 2 through 3, God pronounces judgment on Babylon, uh, picturing her as a woman who is being shamed. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance. I will not arbitrate with a man. What's the point here? This has given you a picture of what God would consider to be an immodest woman. So if you want an objective standard rather than our subjective arguments, well, I think that's modest. Well, I think that's modest. I think that's modest. To some extent, I suppose there is a degree of, if you want to call it arbitrariness, you know, when, as a pastor, I would teach our ladies, well, if you wear your dress or your skirt covering uh, your knee, then you know you're going to be modest. You think of it sitting or standing. Think of it when you're rejoicing on Sunday night, jumping up and down, when you're dancing around, whatever. You need to still be modest. Or if I'm on the platform and you're sitting down there, or you're on the platform high up and people are, you need to be modest. So think of all the situations and wear clothing that's long enough to be modest. Now somebody could say, well, I don't see in the scripture where it says below the knee. Can it be one half inch or one inch? Well, I couldn't say you're going to hell. But then the next person says, well, I think I'll be a half inch above that. Well, I'm not sure I could say you're going to hell. Well, I'll be a half inch above that. But at some point, the pastor in the church just has to say, we're, we know this would be modest. And we're comfortable with this, and so let's just all agree to have a clear sound, and let's just follow it. Because we're not looking at minimum requirements, we're trying to be practical. So in a sense, you might say it's arbitrary, but anything you would do is going to be arbitrary, to, if you're going to nitpick to that level. But if you want to step away that and say, okay, what would not just my view or my pastor's view, but how would God look at it? And he says... I see a picture of a woman that's uh, having to cross a river, so she pulls up her robe and exposes her entire leg. She exposes her thigh to cross the river. That's a shame. That's a shameful thing for a woman. Well, that gives you an idea of what would be modest versus immodest from a divine perspective. Jeremiah 4.30, speaking of Jerusalem, as a backslidden woman. When you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothed yourself with crimson, which was a rare and costly color then, uh, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. And then, on the positive side, another apostolic witness, and here I'm using the King James because I think it's more accurate, 1 Peter 3 through 3 through 4, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, wearing of gold, putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Almost identical to 1 Timothy. You notice he didn't say, don't adorn yourselves, but again, adorn yourself in an appropriate way. Now, not the outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair. Again, there's the braiding of the hair, the elaborate hair arrangement, or the braiding jewelry in the hair. So, uh, wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. Now, putting on of apparel is modest, obviously. And so he's not saying, don't do this at all. He's saying, do so in a modest, appropriate way. So, you can arrange your hair. There may be some use of gold that's functional. There certainly is a use of clothing that's functional, but this should be done for function and not for adornment. The primary purpose should not be adornment. So notice that sense of moderation, and notice that you're trying to avoid this kind of elaborate adornment. So let me distill the principles here. Three principles that I see in all of these passages of Scripture. Notice clear witnesses in two specific passages of the New Testament, as well as supporting Scripture from the Old Testament. And, of course, I could use a lot of other Scriptures, but that's adequate to establish the principles clearly. I see three principles here. Number one, modest clothing. That is decent, chaste, uh, moral, basically covering the body, the torso. Number two, avoid ornamental jewelry, and that would also include things like makeup, hair dye, tattoos, all the things that have the same purpose of the personal adornment of the body. And in regard to makeup, the New Testament never mentions it, but every time in the Bible it's mentioned, it's always in a negative context. 
of the examples that I gave of trying to be alluring and seductive and so on. I certainly would not accuse every woman who dresses in these ways of deliberately trying to do that. I realize it's just a cultural phenomenon. Everybody's conforming to their culture. But if you study it out, makeup has a very definite purpose. It's not arbitrary. In other words, they don't just paint a red dot on their nose. It's very carefully contrived, and I need to say this in the most appropriate way possible, but to, for a woman to appeal as if she is uh, in the midst of an aroused situation. The, the color and where it's located and the way it's done, the enlargement of the eyes, which is done through color and so forth, the enlargement of the lips, which is done through color, and all that is designed for a woman to be appealing in a sexual way. And I probably wouldn't be so specific, but in our culture, uh, I'm the last one to, to say these things. Everybody over the age of five has already heard this from every kind of media that there is. They've heard far worse than what I've just described. So I think I have to be plain and say, well, I certainly would not accuse the average woman or the average Christian woman of attend, uh, intending anything indecent or immoral. I do have to go back and say the way the whole thing is designed is not arbitrary. It's not just to wave a flag and say, by the way, see me. It is designed to be a sexual appeal. It's designed for the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, very specifically. And that's why every time the Bible mentions it's a negative way. And so I would advise that we don't want to send that kind of signal. And what's sad to me is we have a whole society raised in an environment where the distinction between male and female is broken down, where the idea of modesty is broken down, where there's a sense of propriety between male and female that you wouldn't say some things in mixed company. You would find appropriate ways to say them. All that's broken down. And now we're living with the results of a culture in a society where kids and young people and young adults have not received any kind of instruction. Instruction is not just verbally from the pulpit, but the way we live, the choices we make, the way we dress. All that communicates. And all those good communications have been stripped away. And we see the results in our culture. A highly immoral culture that we're fighting against. The third principle is moderation. Avoiding extravagant styles or costs. And I have, I mentioned earlier, we distinction, distinguish function from ornament. We talk about these things. But these three principles of modesty, uh, avoiding personal ornamentation, and moderation. Now, time won't permit me to go into this, but we could teach whole lessons each one. Modesty needs to come from the heart. If we just talk about externals, we run into legalism, living by rules and regulations. But in making these practical applications, I think the apostles are trying to instill a modesty of spirit. Now, I have found over the years that if you don't make practical applications, you will lose the principle. If you just speak on a general level and that's all you ever do, Everybody can say yes, but they'll all go do their own thing, and they'll lose a sense of guidance and balance. I remember talking to a leader, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Until the 1980s, they had specific language dealing with jewelry, makeup, hair, dress, all that. In the 80s, they felt like, well, the situation is so diverse, culture has changed so much, people are doing so many different things. We'll just put the principles in our statement, and we'll leave all, all these specifics out. And so if you go even today and read their statements, they're great statements. I agree with these wonderful principles of modesty, moderation, and so on the Word of God. But because they took out all the practical applications, guess what happened? They lost any semblance from their own history of trying to fulfill these things in practical ways. And I've talked to some of them that may, they may not believe exactly like we do, but they speak with some regret we went too far. We took out all practical commitments out. We ended up sending a message to people, it's okay to pay lip service, but you don't have to make any practical commitments. So it would be like saying, we believe in stewardship, but we're going to never one time say anything about tithing. So just be a good steward, whatever that means to you. So the guy that puts $1 a week in the offering says, I'm a good steward. You know, if you don't break it down and say, what is a reasonable application of what it would mean in the 21st century USA to be a good steward? 
and what it would mean to be modest unless you break it down, unless you have pastors that actually explain it and apply it, you lose the very principle. But I am challenging us to go beyond any specific rules or guidelines and adopt the Spirit. It's not just about what do I have to do to sing in the choir? What do I have to do to be a voting member? What do I have to do to be a preacher? It's got to be a spirit. And then, of course, that goes into our speech. You know, we do need to be more conscious since our world has lost the concept of modesty in speech. And so what boys and girls talk together, what men and women talk in mixed company, what's the kind of things, going back to Bill Clinton, uh, when the media started zeroing in on all things he did, it broke something in our culture. Now it was appropriate on public radio, in the newspapers, in print, in casual conversation at work, in the school, to talk about explicit things. And if you follow youth culture, there was a noticeable breakdown in certain standards of morality, even in the world or in the church, because these things were now openly discussed. It took away the sacredness of some things. We have to restore that in the church. Our actions, our choice of entertainment, and then, of course, as I mentioned, our dress. So in addition to any particular rules of length, you know, you know, make sure you wear sleeves. You know, make sure you this, that. But we have to be careful that our clothing is not too tight, too thin, too short, too low, too showy. And it was interesting to go to Jerusalem, to the Orthodox Jewish area of the city, and see signs that admonished people to dress modestly and to list what that would mean. It's almost like you need to be a Pentecostal to walk in this area of the city, or you have to be an Orthodox Jew. Uh, there is still an understanding of people that take the Bible seriously and literally. Even if it's the Old Testament only, they come up with very similar concepts of modesty. I'm not saying we have to dress like the Orthodox Jews or the Muslims, but I'm saying we're not coming out of left field when we say the Bible really talks about this. Now let me summarize. The whole point is to walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. I say then, walk in the Spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. There is a battle going on. We acknowledge that. A battle in our culture. They're battling our own spirit. But we've got to let the Holy Spirit win over the desires of the flesh. And we should definitely stay away from things of the flesh. We should identify things of the flesh. The Bible speaks of them as works of the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So he identifies adultery with fornication, which you could say, sure, that's sexual sin. But uncleanness and lewdness, that gets in the subject of modesty. And some of these words would deal with going outside the context of moderation. And then he says... Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Bottom line, known sins and known dangers and known problems, stay away from. And then on the positive side, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And if I were dealing a whole, dealing, teaching a whole series on holiness, I would probably spend a lesson just on this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You know, if, if we can cultivate a spirit of goodness, that will take care of an immodest spirit. If we will cultivate a spirit of self-control, that will take care of immoderate dress and immodest dress and a desire for personal ornamentation. In other words, if we can cultivate the positive fruit of the spirit, that will go a long way to solving these issues before they really come up. And so I would challenge us in summary that the ultimate answer is to walk after the Spirit, to seek the fruit of the Spirit, to let the Spirit of God overflow in our lives. A lot of these things we're talking about will mean nothing. They will go away. They will vanish. But if we don't take lessons like this to spell them out, we forget that when the Spirit moves on us, there needs to be a practical application. 
You know, we've got to be reminded that there are practical applications. Uh, but once we are reminded of that, then we keep our focus on the Spirit. Then as the Spirit moves in us, then we understand how to apply the wonderful, liberating power of the Spirit in practical, personal ways in our life. And the result is, actually, when you look at it from a scriptural point of view, against such there is no law. It really is liberating. When you realize, I'm not bound to the latest fad and fashion. Sure, I want to look nice. I, want to, I wouldn't want people to walk up to me and think it was, you know, ugly, you know, out of date, out of style, hideous, horrible to be around. But I don't want to have to worry about, am I attractive? Am I doing this? Am I meeting that? I want to be able to just be seen for who I am in God. And so when you cut through a lot of these things, which... You know, private schools have found this, and I'm not necessarily advocating this, but they find that they have people wear uniforms that eliminates all that competition, all that, you know, stuff among kids because that once you take that off the table, then they're free to relate to people as they are. Well, in a sense, we're not advocating uniforms, obviously, but what we are saying is if you'll have modest apparel, then that takes so many issues off the table. And if I can say this and, and be honest, you know, as a pastor dealing with people, going to church all the time. I don't have a problem. Uh, an attractive woman comes and talks to me. I don't think of her as a sex object. I think of her as a person. But when you're walking out in the world, you go out in a college campus, or you go in a park, or you go in a mall, or you go down the street, sometimes you have to actually turn your eyes away. You're forced to deal with those issues. How terrible it would be to be in the church and you're faced with women or men who are being either deliberately or carelessly provocative in their dress. You don't, this ought to be a safe haven. You know, being with the people of God ought to be a safe haven where you can relate to people for who they are. You can appreciate their inward and outward beauty. You can appreciate wholesome relationships and not have to worry about sins and lust and temptations. We have enough of that out in the world. Every live, warm-blooded human being has to be careful out in the world. We shouldn't have to have that kind of guard among the people of God. We ought to respect one another. And that's what's beautiful about the church, is that we do have that kind of relationship. But it's because we still think and talk and practice these teachings. Let's stand together. Thank you for your attentiveness. And I want us just to ask the Lord to renew us in the Spirit, that we can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but develop the fruit of the Spirit. Can we call on the Lord right now? Let's open our hearts in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that you bestowed upon us. Help us, Lord, to be full of the Spirit, to be renewed in the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to... Thank you again for joining us, the podcast of First Church. We're so honored and delighted you could join us today, and uh, we want to stay connected with you. So please give us a follow. You can find all of our social links on our website at firstchurch.app. You can also download our mobile app from there. And we would love to stay in touch with you on Facebook or on Instagram. And we hope that we can see you again soon.